you want to turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 5, and uh, also children, uh, it's now time if uh, they want to head back to children's worship. Remember, this is a, a ministry that we provide as we seek to, to teach our children in an uh, age-appropriate way what it means to abandon themselves to the true and the living God. And uh, so if you want your children to be involved in that, they can go at this point. And for us, we'll consider Daniel 5. Belshazzar the king had a great feast for a thousand of his nobles, and he was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. When Belshazzar tasted the wine, he gave orders to bring the gold and silver vessels which Nebuchadnezzar his father had taken out of the temple which was in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God, which was in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles and his wives and his concubines drank out of them. They drank the wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Suddenly, the fingers of a man's hand emerged and began writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the back of the hand that did the writing. Then the king's face grew pale and his thoughts alarmed him and his hip joints went slack and his knees began knocking together. The king called, out, called aloud to bring in the conjurers and the Chaldeans, the diviners. The king spoke and said to the wise men of Babylon, Any man who can read this inscription and explain its interpretation to me shall be clothed with purple and have a necklace of gold around his neck and have authority as third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the inscription or make known its interpretation to the king. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his face grew even paler, and his nobles were perplexed. The queen entered the banquet hall. Because of the words of the king and his nobles, the queen spoke and said, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts alarm you or your face be pale. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is a spirit of the holy gods, and in the days of your father, illumination, insight, and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, and your father, the king, appointed him chief of the magicians, conjurers, Chaldeans, and diviners. This was because an extraordinary spirit, knowledge, and insight, interpretation of dreams, explanation of enigmas, and solving of difficult problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Let Daniel now be summoned, and he will declare the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king spoke and said to Daniel, are you that Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, whom my father the king brought from Judah? Now I've heard about you, that a spirit of the gods is in you, and that illumination, insight, and extraordinary wisdom has been found in you. Just now the wise men and the conjurers were brought in before me, that they might read this inscription and make his interpretation known to me, but they could not declare the interpretation of the message. But I personally have heard about you that you are able to give interpretations and solve difficult problems. Now, if you're able to read the inscription and make its interpretation known to me, you will be clothed with purple and wear a necklace of gold around your neck, and you will have authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do come to you because you are the one who gives illumination. You are the one who can give us understanding of your word, and we pray that you might do precisely that as we look at this, this passage. 
We pray that you would open up our hearts to understand, and we pray, God, that you would give us more than simply understanding, but that you would grant by the power of your Spirit that we might order our lives based on the truth of your Word, that it may change us, that we will walk out of here different people than came in. We pray for our children back in children's worship, and we plead with you, O God, that through the proclamation of the Word that they will hear through their instruction and giving you praise that you might indeed bring these little ones to a saving knowledge of your Son. And for us, O God, would you receive our worship and would you change our lives in Jesus' name. Amen. So our theme for this year has been heading home. And we've been, we had a series early on just looking at heaven and trying to understand what home is. And then we've turned into to Daniel to be looking at that. But the theme has continued, heading home. And the reason for that is I know that it's really easy for us to just get kind of caught up here and for here to become really the, the focal point of all of our lives. And we're, we're so tied into to making our life work here that, that, that we quit looking home. If you well, I should ask if you remember, because maybe it's a little arrogant to think you remember what I preached back in January. Um, but uh, in January, when I first started this series, we, we started out looking at a parable told by John Eldridge in his book, The Journey of Desire. And you remember it was about a, uh, uh, a sea lion that lost the sea. And he was living in a barren place, and he found a rock, and there was a little pool, and he could swim in the pool, and he could sit on the rock, and he'd sit on the rock, and he'd wait, and... And every now and then he'd get a, smith, a sniff of the sea. And it would, just, it would just give him these great dreams. And she was dreaming about swimming in the sea and just, just being all that, that he was made to be. And we left it there. I want to I pick up the story um, as Eldridge uh, writes about it. Um, he says, The sea lion loved his rock. And he even loved waiting night after night for the sea breezes that might come. Especially... He loved the dreams those memories would stir. But as you well know, even the best of dreams cannot go on. And in the morning when the sea lion woke, he was still in the barren lands. Sometimes he would close his eyes and try to fall back asleep. It never seemed to work for the sun was always very bright. Eventually it became too much for him to bear. He began to visit his rock only on occasion. I have too much to do, he told himself. I cannot waste my time just idling about. He really did not have much to do. The truth of it was, waking so far from home was such a disappointment, he did not want to have those wonderful dreams anymore. The day finally came when he stopped going to his rock altogether, and he no longer lifted his nose to the wind when the sea breezes blew. It's really a sad story, isn't it? And it's sadder when we understand that it's a parable that really tells us about the life of altogether too many who just get caught up here and they quit longing for home. They quit longing for heaven. They quit longing for the presence of God which has been promised to us. And we, we end up, it, it, it hurts too much and we turn away. The truth is, I think that sometimes the slow passing of time is the enemy that we face. I don't know if you remember what it was like being a new believer. I, I remember just that time and the joy. And I remember, you know, learning Jesus is coming back. And it's like, oh my goodness. As a matter of fact, one of the witnessing tools was uh, David Meese's old album, Are You Ready? Which is all about the return of Jesus Christ. And, and so that's how I'm coming to know the Lord. I'm looking, is he coming? Is he coming now? 
I remember the kids in, in Arizona, we'd have one of those big uh, dust storms coming in and the sky turns orange and, and there's just this, this heaviness and, and the Vons will remember this. And it's just, just an amazing experience. And they'd say, is he coming now? Is it now? And to have that anticipation and, and when we're new in the faith, we've got that and we're excited and, and then life comes in, right? And we've got the pressures of life. We got stuff to do. You know, we can't just idly lay about, just as the sea lion was was wondering. There's 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 things that are coming. We've got pressures. We've got we we, we face heartbreaks, right? And I'm sure that uh, everyone in this room has faced at some point some level of a heartbreak in in their lives that that begins to to weigh heavy upon your spirit. We also experience successes. God blesses us with these these things we never expected, and 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 we succeed, and that goes wonderful. And then then one of the difficulties we face mundaneness, just the normal day to day, and all of these things weigh upon us in the slow passing of time, and we're still waiting. It still hasn't come. It's still not back, and we still wait. It's easy in that way to just settle in and say, well. Okay, I guess I'll just make the most of it here. <clears throat> a lot happened between chapter 4 and chapter 5 of Daniel. Chapter 4, that, that wonderful uh, climax of chapters 2 through 4, which I believe is the conversion of Nebuchadnezzar, where we see the witnesses that God brought into his life, first through, through Daniel and then through the three Hebrew children, and then God himself comes into Nebuchadnezzar's life, and he takes him out, and he spends the seven uh, periods of time, and he, he then comes to his senses, and he remembers that God is, is, is the one who puts people into the places that they are, and he, he, he writes out that great uh, uh, praise uh, at, at the end of chapter 4, and then his kingdom is restored to him. Something God didn't have to do, right? That was just kind of bonus. It's like, it would have been great for him to just come to his senses and praise God, but God just always goes more than we expect. And so he, he gives him back the kingdom, and all of that has taken place. And then he dies. Um, it's it's uh, what took place between 4 and 5. Nebuchadnezzar passes away. Uh, he ruled for 43 years. Um, almost all of it, uh, the, the nation of Judah was in captivity for that almost the full 43 years. And after he died, there were a series of kings who came in and followed. One reigned for two years, the next reigned for four, and then there was a child uh, who was king for about nine months, and uh, then through the loving way in which royal families seem to treat one another from time to time, he was killed, and uh, there was a, a new king that uh, came in. And his name was uh, Nabonidus. I, I just don't speak Babylonian very well. Um, and he had a son named Belshazzar. So Belshazzar was the son of, of this king who ruled for 17 years. But uh, Nabonidus would kind of left Babylon and was kind of in other areas. And so his son Belshazzar was left to basically do the ruling in, um, in Babylon. And so that's kind of the, the role that he was. They were kind of co-regents. I think that may be why when Belshazzar's offering the reward, he says, you'd be third in the kingdom. You know, if we all remember uh, Joseph was, you'll be second in the kingdom. And it's like, well, that would be the good, but third. It's like, well, yeah, under the secretary of state, who's it? Well, no, it's, he, he's only second. So that's all the best he can do is, is the guy underneath him. And so he's, so he's giving that uh, offer to him. It's possible that Nabonidus had uh, died uh, right before this happened, it's, it's most likely because he, he was killed as the Medes would come in and take over. And so all of this has taken place. Well, in the process, 
uh, in the changing of the, the kings, as I've already mentioned, it wasn't always just a, a peaceful, easy transfer of power. Um, but it brought turmoil. And through all of that, and, and all of the, the individuals who had served Nebuchadnezzar would be shuffled around, and Daniel kind of disappears and hadn't been seen for a time. And uh, he's, he's coming back in at, at this moment. How could it affect you? You know, and if we just kind of imagine what it would be like in that situation and the anticipation, you know, I can think of the excitement for, for Nebuchadnezzar as, I mean, for Daniel as Nebuchadnezzar um, uh, begins to believe and, and the anticipation, it's like, maybe that'll bring an end to the exile. Wouldn't that be great? Maybe we can go back. That'll be wonderful. And then it doesn't. And then he dies, and the next guy comes in, and the next guy probably doesn't even pay much attention to Daniel. Daniel was too powerful. He'd be a threat. So he gets shuffled off, and all of a sudden he's gone, and he sees no one is sending us back. We're not going back yet. We're still here in exile. And the weight of that can begin to weigh on an individual. And for some, like the sea lion, they might just settle in. But all the appearance that we have from the Scripture is that Daniel, in the midst of that, remained faithful. And I think that as we begin to consider this passage and we see that he was so faithful that at the moment that Belshazzar needed the message, God sent Daniel in to bring it to him. This powerful message that he brings to this king, last king of Babylon. Was we live in exile here. We're trying to build God's kingdom while living in man's. We need to remain faithful. We need to not just settle in. I think that if we look at this passage, I, 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 I see three principles from this passage that can help us to remain faithful. And the first of those is we need to remember God. And to remember God, it isn't just simply a matter of saying, oh yes, there is a God. Got that. Check. I, I understand that. And that's, that's handled. It's much more than that. There's a, a, a Hebrew word that's uh, translated as remember, is zakar. And it's used in a few different passages. And it really captures the sense of what I'm, I'm trying to communicate from this and what I see Daniel doing in his life and what God is calling us to do. We see it in uh, Genesis chapter 9. And uh, verses 15 and 16, remember Genesis 9 is uh, after the flood as God begins to uh, talk about his covenant with uh, Noah. And in verse 15, he says, and I will remember my covenant. I will remember. Because this is God saying, I will remember my covenant. And we think about God remembering, it's a little bit more than simply, oh yeah, that's right, there was a covenant. Okay, now let's move on, right? But remembering the covenant has some specific uh, ideas associated with it. He goes on to show us what those are. He says, I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all the earth. Why will the water not do that? Because God will remember his covenant. It was a part of his covenant. And he will not act in uh, uh, contradiction to the covenant. He says, when the bow is in the cloud, then I will look upon it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. We see the word also used in Exodus chapter 20, verse 8, one of the Ten Commandments. Uh, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. I remember one day, uh, one of my sons uh, woke up on a Sunday morning and said, oh no! I said, oh, what's so wrong? He said, I forgot it was Sunday. That's a little of what the commandment means, but that's not the whole of what it means, right? Remembering the Sabbath is more than that. 
It means to order my life around the reality that God has given me this day for Himself. And that's what it means to remember. And maybe one of the more poignant uses of it is found in the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 12, verse 1. Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come, and the years draw near when you will say, I have no delight in them. To remember God. That is to say, and it, it, it involves your whole heart. And as we talk about the heart, we've talked about it in different ways here, and, and, and you'll hear me regularly talk about the train, that the heart involves three components when we look at it in the Scripture. Sometimes we think with our heart, sometimes we choose with our heart, and sometimes we feel with our heart, recognizing that. But the way that they work is that the mind, that's where we start, is we remember, we, we bring it into our mind, and we remember God, we remember the truth of who God is, but we do not leave it in our mind. What do we do with that? We order our lives consistent with that truth that we now know. We know that God is sovereign, and that means I must make this choice consistent with His sovereignty. I must order my life after the truth about God that I know. And when I order my life after the truth that I know about God, my emotions are affected. Fear is able to be taken away. Discouragement is gone. Dismay is no more as I am able to remember God Paul gives us an example of that in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7-11. through 11. He says, But we have this treasure, that is the gospel, in earthen vessels, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. For we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not despairing. Persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. The truth that he understood about God, the truth that he understood about the gospel prevented him from being crushed by the outward pressures that have been brought upon him. It was in remembering God that he found that hope. It is in remembering God that Daniel was able to remain faithful and was able to bring the message that God wanted to bring to Belshazzar. I think Daniel shows us two things to remember about God. There's lots. Um, but the two that are, that are poignant in this passage are, first of all, that he's aware. God is aware just think about that for a moment. And as, as I look at my own life, I, I find that there are those times when I forget that simple truth, right? It's like, no, God, God does know about this. It seems to be almost behind some of the, the great cries of anguish that we see in the Scripture at, at, at different times, that wondering, God, do you know? Do you see what's happening? In Psalm 22, that uh, messianic psalm that even the Lord Jesus quotes from um, on the cross. He starts out in verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I have no rest. The psalmist is crying out, God, do you see? 
And Jesus alludes to this psalm as he, as he prays the first part of that. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He cries that out to the Father. And was, you've heard me say many, many times, I'm convinced that the Lord Jesus heard the answer to that. And that he saw exactly why God the Father was forsaking him, which was our sins, which is why he was then able to say it is finished. That he knew now it's all paid for. But the psalmist didn't know that, and he cries out, Are you aware? Are you aware of the suffering that I'm going through? Do you know? And he calls out to God. Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah is speaking to God's people. And we're familiar at the end of this, uh, those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. But this is just before that. And, and God says to his people, Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice due me escapes the notice of my God? What he's indicating is that there is a tendency within the people of God even that we will live as though God does not notice. We will live as though God is not aware. We will order our lives consistent with the lie that God does not know. And it brings us into a horrible spot as it separates us from God and it puts us in, in, a, in a place where our, our, our lives are a mess. Because we're, we're, we're missing the truth that God is aware. My favorite psalm is Psalm 73. And in Psalm 73, Asaph is distressed because he looks around him and he sees that the wicked are prospering and he sees that the, the, the righteous are suffering and he can't figure this out. And it, it, it vexes his soul and he doesn't know what to do. And so he cries out to God, and in verse 11 we see something of exactly what, what he was wrestling with as he looks at the, the wicked. He says that they, they say, how does God know? And there's no knowledge with the Most High. He recognizes they're living their life as though you're not even aware and you don't seem to do anything about it. And Habakkuk chapter 1, Habakkuk is significant because uh, the answer to Habakkuk's cry in chapter 1 of Habakkuk is sending the Chaldeans, that is the Babylonians, to come in and to take Judah into exile. So they are the answer to that. But he's crying out. What was it that led him to cry out to God? He says, how long, O Lord, will I call for help? And you will not hear. I cry out to you, violence! Yet you do not save. And he's perplexed by this because for that moment, he either forgot or was failing to remember that God was aware. And it brought this distress in his life. Back to our passage in Daniel. Look at uh, if you've got your Bible, you can turn to verse 23. We haven't read it yet, but verse 23 is, is significant. <clears throat> because Daniel has come in before the king, and Daniel says, But you, speaking to Belshazzar, have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven. And they've brought the vessels of his house before you, and you and your nobles, your wives, your concubines, have been drinking wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver, and gold of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see, hear, or understand. But the God in whose hand are your life breath and all your ways, you have not glorified. Well, he, he, he spelled out exactly what had happened, right? Now remember what, what's transpired is Belshazzar has this party with all these individuals and they bring in the, the uh, gold and silver vessels from uh, the temple and they start drinking their wine in them and then they start praising the gods of gold and silver and iron and wood and bronze and all that. And, and that's all been taking place. But you know, Daniel wasn't there. The wise men came in and they couldn't say what the writing was. But Daniel wasn't there. Daniel comes in and he knows precisely what has taken place, right? How did he know? 
How did he know? Maybe, maybe he could surmise, you know. Maybe he could say, well, this is just like Belshazzar, right? You know, and, and say that's kind of what's going on. It's possible some of them were still there. That's all possible. But he says you praised the gods of gold, silver, bronze, wood, iron, and stone. How would he know that? The evidence there in the room wouldn't say that. He would know that because God had sent him there. Even in the, the testimony about Daniel in uh, verse 14, tells us something about how he would know that. Now I have heard about you that a spirit of the gods is in you. Stop for a moment real quick. I want, to, I want you to notice. He says a spirit of the gods is in you. That's what Belshazzar says to Daniel. Do you remember what the queen said to Belshazzar? In verse 11, there's a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. I just find it fascinating. Belshazzar dropped that. <laughs> he, did, he didn't want to deal with the fact that holy means the, uh, to, to be different, if you will, to be set apart, to be separate. And our God is holy God. He's the only holy God because there's no one like him. And Belshazzar didn't like that so much, so he removed that. And he just says, well, it's the spirit of the gods who gives illumination. He already knew how Daniel would know that. Daniel coming and saying, here's all that's happened, was declaring to Belshazzar that God is aware. It was telling it to Daniel. Daniel's like, oh, well, God knew what was going on because couldn't you sense that? It's like there's Belshazzar having one of those parties again. It's possibly not the first time he'd done anything like this. He'd probably had his life this way. But anyway, he says, there it is. And, and he's, he's done this. But Daniel says, but God knows because God told me. And whereas we could get really frustrated, it's like, God, why aren't you doing something about this? This guy is blaspheming you. He's doing sacrilege. He's doing all these horrible things. Why aren't you doing something? Aren't you aware? The answer is yes. Yes, he's aware. He knows. He's very much aware. Do you ever wonder if God sees? If God's really aware? Now, we would never say that. But to be still and to say... God, really? You know, shootings. Uh, the mass shootings in our country, we, we pray about it. it. It seems like week after week after week, we have to pray about a new mass shooting within our nation where the violence of, of people believe that it's okay to wipe out an image of the living God and to just strike out at them. And if it's not that, it's the violence and it's the, the hatred that's around us. It's, it's awful. We have a ministry in this church, refuge ministry, that just shouldn't have to exist, Right? That it's, it's for survivors of abuse. Why should there ever have to be a survivor of abuse? Because there should never be abuse. It's just a wickedness. And to cry out, God, do you see? Do you see the oppression of the weak by the strong? Do you know what's going on? We see division, hatred, and insults all within the church of Jesus Christ. That brothers and sisters in Christ who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, who He loved enough that He would give His life to be certain that they could be with Him and the Father, turn with hatred and despise one another. In violation of the prayer that Jesus prayed, that we would be one as He and the Father are one. And yet we see this and we cry out, God, do you see? It's almost as though we say, God, look at all that is going on around us. 
But if we can be still, we know he says, I know. And that helps, doesn't it? To know that he's reminding us from Daniel, I'm aware. I know. Because if the sovereign God knows, if the King of Kings knows, if the Prince of Peace is aware, it'll be all right. I just need to wait. And so I wait. Daniel was convinced that God was aware. We need to be convinced he's aware and also that he's active. That he's active. Um, the, The deist will say that there is a God and he got this whole thing started. He's aware of what's going on, but he's not involved. Isn't really the message we see throughout Scripture that constantly God is involved in the lives of us as human beings? He is not just distant watching, but he is active in our lives. Peter brings that out in in, uh, 2 Peter as uh, he he wants his readers to understand, um, even as they're in uh, exile, if you will, wandering about. And he said, you have to recognize that God is active. He says in verse 3, Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking following after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of waters and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his, uh, but by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. The fact that he hasn't acted in a way that we've seen should not lead us to conclude that he's not active. Look what he did with Belshazzar. He sent a hand, right? That's what we're told. The fingers of a hand came in, but but Belshazzar saw the back of it, so so we we see that there was a hand. It was a human hand. looked like a human hand. Clearly it wasn't a human hand. I don't think one was taken up out of a grave and brought in, but it looks like a human hand, and then it goes in there, and that's what's going on. We don't know what it was. You know, could have been an angel, could be, could be, you know, uh, the, the hand of Christ ahead of time. It's possible. I don't know. Um, what I do know is God sent it. God sent it because he was involved. And what did that hand do? It wrote the word of God, right? This was God's message and he wrote it down on a wall. I don't know about you, I like having the scriptures, (laughs) it's a little nicer, to have that written down on the wall, but it was the message from God. And look at the effect that it had on this unbeliever, that his, his, his hips went slack, his knees began knocking together, he went pale, and then no one could translate, and he went paler. All color is gone from him, this fell upon him, this moment. God acted 
so as to bring a message into Belshazzar's life. What is God doing in our lives? I think it's a question we have to ask more and begin to look and even ask God to, to show us what he's doing so that we might see the activity of God. Uh, Robin and I wonder a lot. We, we walk the dog around Aslan Heights. There's 196 houses in Aslan Heights, okay? And so we, we, we don't see all of them. But um, the dog could go, but we can't make it that long. But we, so we walk the dog around, and we're astounded at how often it, it seems like it's almost every time we go out, we're walking the dog, and we go by a uh, driveway. And as we're going by a driveway, at that moment, the individual comes home. It's not like when we're four houses away, we see them pull in. It's right when we get to the driveway, and we either have to hurry up or wait. That astounds me, how that can happen. From the standpoint... God in his sovereignty led them to leave work at precisely the time and to face exactly the amount of traffic to get to their house at that moment when we were passing by. Now, I don't believe that I can tell you why, but we wonder. <laughs> you know, what's, and if it's the same one a couple times in a row, then we say, I think God wants us to talk to these folks, so we better do something at that point. But, but, to, but to, to see what God is doing um, we were having uh, Robin's Aunt Leona's uh, funeral out in Colorado uh, this year, and it was kind of raining when we got started, so they had a tent set up, and, and so we're in this tent that has a big metal pole in the middle and these four metal poles on the side, and, and it's out in eastern Colorado, and all of a sudden this uh, rain turns into a huge thunderstorm and the loud clap of uh, thunder, and we see the lightning around us, and, and I'm supposed to lead this, and I'm thinking, what do we do? And it's like... Um, I think God wants us to leave. So we went through the service very quickly. It was like, I think I can discern what God is doing at this point, that we should not be sitting here underneath this middle pole out in the middle of this open area. This is not a good idea. And so we went ahead. We, we were able to discern. But what is God doing? We need to look to see that, to recognize what's taking place in the situations around us, because he is working. He's working all the time. He's not just working when he does those things we like which is when we tend to say, oh, look what God did. He did this wonderful thing because it's something I like. But even when the thing that he's doing is a hard thing, we believe that it is God who is active, that he is involved in every part of our life as, as inconsequential as walking the dog and seeing the neighbor. God is active in that. Even when it's a hard time, like the three Hebrew children who were told they were going to be thrown into the fiery furnace, and they didn't know God was going to save them, right? But they did know God was active, didn't they? Daniel doesn't know what's going to happen. The kingdom's going to be taken away from Belshazzar. Then what? It hadn't turned out well when it's been taken away from any of the other people for Daniel, right? But God is still there. What if? God is leading the church in America to a time of persecution. Is God active? Is that His hand? If suddenly the government turns against Christianity and we lose our tax-exempt status, and of all things, horrible that, that pastors might lose their uh, housing allowance benefit, right? I hear pastors worried about that regularly and it's it's something that you know what if god does that is he still in it is it his hand is he still doing what is good matthew 5 11 tells us 
The one blessing I think that most of us try to avoid. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We want all of God's blessings, except that one, right? But what if we align our hearts to want that one too, because God is active? Whatever he will bring. Paul says in Philippians 1.21, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And that is truth. And we remember that truth and we order our lives based on that truth. Because we believe, we remember God, believing that He is aware and He is active. And the second step, the second principle for us to, to put into our life is we need to carry the message. Let's read verses 17 through 29. But I, uh, verse 17. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Keep your gifts for yourself, or give your rewards to someone else. However, I will read the inscription to the king and make the interpretation known to him. O king, the Most High God granted sovereignty, grandeur, glory, and majesty to Nebuchadnezzar, your father. Because of the grandeur which he bestowed on him, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language feared and trembled before him. Whomever he wished, he killed. And whomever he wished, he spared. Whomever he wished, he elevated. Whomever um, he wished, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit became so proud that he behaved arrogantly, he was deposed from his royal throne and his glory was taken away from him. He was also driven away from mankind and his heart was made like that of beasts and his dwelling place was with the wild donkeys. He was given grass to eat like cattle and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he recognized that the Most High God is ruler over the realm of mankind and that he sets over it whomever he wishes. Yet you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart even though you knew all this. But you have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven and they have brought the vessels of the house before you and you and your nobles, your wives, your concubines have been drinking wine from them and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood and stone, which do not see, hear or understand. But the God in whose hand are your life, breath and all your ways, you have not glorified. Then the hand was sent from him and this inscription was written out. Now this is the inscription that was written out, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Aparsin. This is the interpretation of the message, Mene. God has numbered your kingdom and put an end to it. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found deficient. Perez, which is the singular form, your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and Persians. This Belshazzar, then Belshazzar gave orders and they clothed Daniel with purple and put a necklace of gold around his neck and issued a proclamation concerning him that he now had authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. There's a message to carry. Jesus said to Peter in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not overcome it. Christ will build his church. He is going to do it by his power. He is going to accomplish it. How is he going to build that church? Romans 1.16 tells us, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, 
For it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. How is God going to build his kingdom? How is Jesus going to build his kingdom? Through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's how he's going to build it. He's going to build it with a message. As a matter of fact, as Jesus is talking with Pontius Pilate uh, right before he is crucified, Pilate is asking him about his kingdom. And Jesus has this to say to him in, in John chapter 18, verse 36. Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. But showing us, he's not going to build his kingdom through the use of force. It is not through coercion that the kingdom of God is going to be built. It is not through our efforts of fighting and bearing the sword that the church is going to be built. It is through a message. It is through the word that it's going to be built. So that the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 Verses 4 and 5 will tell us, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We're destroying speculation and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. How's he going to build his church? It's through a message. You see what happened with Belshazzar. God brought an event, right? The event was the hand writing on the wall. And then he sent a messenger to explain the event, right? You see what happened with us? God brought an event, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he sent us as messengers with that message, didn't he? Seems like he said something about when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you'll receive power and you'll be my witnesses both in Judea and Samaria and uh, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria and the uttermost parts of the world. We're going to go out with that message. What's the message about? It's about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what we're sent out for. It's with that message that he's going to build his kingdom. Let's consider that message. That message is that there is sin. That's what was brought to Belshazzar first off. Notice the judgment that is proclaimed in verse 27. And I want to focus specifically on verse 27. There's, there's the, the, the three statements, Mene, then Tekel, and then Perez. And, and he describes each of them. I want to focus on that middle one. That middle one, I think, is the, is the crux, and I want to recognize the significance of what he's saying. He says, this one means that you have been weighed on the scales and found deficient. Those are terrifying words, are they not? They're terrifying words, recognizing where did they come from? Who said that he had been weighed? Almighty God, the one who is aware and active, said that you have been weighed and found deficient. I think about what Belshazzar might have felt. I don't know. But I've experienced something like that in my life. When I was in ninth grade, I was actually arrested. Um, not, a, not a very good guy. Um, it, was, it, was, it was bad. It was dark. But I was, I was arrested, and I remember being put into the cell, and the sound of that closing was one of the most terrifying sounds of my life because I was overwhelmed with the reality that I was guilty I knew it I knew I'd done it and I knew they knew it and I wasn't sure I'd ever get out there are those moments when each person becomes very much aware and when they're really still and they're quiet they know I'm guilty we're very adept at quelling that feeling and moving beyond it, and self-justifying. But when it hits, 
It's powerful. And to hear those words coming from God, having been written out by some hand that just came into your room, has a powerful effect. And then there's the indictment in verses 22 and 23. Daniel says, But you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart even though you knew all this. But you have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven, and they've brought the vessels of the house before you, and you and your nobles, your wives, and your concubines have been drinking wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see, hear, or understand. The indictment comes as he is charged with sacrilege, first off misusing these holy items. And he's charged, secondly, with adultery, right? He's got his wives and his concubines that he's been gathering together. And finally, he's charged with idolatry. Here are the charges. They're laid out before him. And he knows it to be true. But there's another element of the indictment that he brings, and that is the alienation from God. He tells Belshazzar, you know it, you knew better, right? You knew what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. He tells him, you knew better. When he begins to talk about the gods of, of, of gold and silver, of, of bronze and iron, and, uh, and he says, they, 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 they can't see, they can't hear, they can't understand. In other words, you know this. And the worshiper of false gods knows that there's no life in them, knows that they're false. And the reason that he worships them anyway is because of his alienation from God. He's separated from the God who is life. He's separated from the holy God. He's separated from the only God who has all goodness in him. And he's separated and he's in that place of of deadness. And this is the indictment that is brought. And to add to that, he tells him at the the end of verse uh, 23, But the God in whose hand are your life, breath, and all your ways you have not glorified. In other words, he has been holding you up and you have not glorified him. He's the one that you have rebelled against, that one who is holding you. The image that Jonathan Edwards brings up in the centers of the hands of an angry God, the fact that that people are are, are hateful toward God who holds them above a fire, like one might hold a a spider above a flame, and it is that thread that holds them up, and they fail to realize that it is the hand that prevents them from going into the flame. And yet they curse the hand, but it is the hand that is saving them at that moment. And that's the image that we have Daniel giving Belshazzar at this moment. And the reality is it's a message for every one of us, isn't it? We've been found, we've been weighed and found deficient. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's true, isn't it? It's true. And it's true of each one of us that we come to see that we have been weighed and found lacking. And when we're quiet, when we'll allow ourselves to be alone with God, and let him search and listen to what he's showing. We know our guilt. No less clear than I felt it when I was in that uh, cell. 
And it's there. We are guilty. We have been weighed and have been found deficient. And the one who weighs us is the judge who holds our life, breath, and all of our ways in his hand. But it is not hopeless. Because there is also salvation. Don't miss God's patience as we look at this story. I remember who I was talking to recently about movies and, and the, the visceral satisfaction that we receive when the bad guy gets it, right? It's like, yes, that's as it ought to be, you know? And, and there's an element, if we can feel a little bit of that with Belshazzar, right? It's like, yes, the bad guy got it. But don't miss the patience of God. A hand came in and wrote on the wall, right? That hand could have turned around and taken the life of every person in that room, right? Could have absolutely crushed him, said, done. Honestly, that's how I'd have wanted to write the story, right? <laughs> I think that would have been glorious, right? It's, let's just send him in. I'm right there with James and John. Lord, shall we call down fire from heaven? But what did Jesus say? said, no. He's patient. Why did the king's wise men fail to answer the question? Well, we can say, well, because they didn't know. Yeah, but they didn't know, probably because didn't God blind them? Why? Why would he do that? Why did he bring Daniel to come in and to clearly get in Belshazzar's face, right? I mean, that's pretty bold. And he just right there at him, he says, this is what you did. This is why you're guilty. Doesn't back away. Even to the point that the king says, I'm going to give you all these rewards. He says, keep them for yourself, king. He didn't come in with a king live forever, right? He came in and just said, this ain't good. That's my summation. It's probably not a very good translation of the Hebrew, but nonetheless, or the Aramaic in this case. Why did God do that? Let me ask another question that will come to the same conclusion. Why did God bring the plagues on Egypt? Did not each and every plague provide an opportunity and invitation to Pharaoh to repent and to turn to the true and the living God? Why did it take so long to build the ark? Because Noah was an inept craftsman? Or did God want, with every peg that is pounded, to be a reminder to his neighbors, repent, repent? Do you remember the message that uh, uh, Jonah took to Nineveh? That great gospel presentation that he took as he went up to Nineveh and he tells him just the glorious love of God by saying 40 days you're going to be destroyed. That's all they got from him. 40 days you're going to be destroyed. That's it. I'm not telling you the good news. Just told him that and what happened? There was a revival in the whole city. Because the message was intended to give an opportunity, an invitation to repentance. It's hope. The patience of God is seen in all that is going through Daniel's dealing with Belshazzar. And Belshazzar 
rejects the message. We see that in verse 29. Daniel said, don't give me the rewards. What does he do in verse 29? He gives him the rewards. If Belshazzar is not going to believe Daniel when he says, don't give me money, is he going to believe him when he says, repent and change your life? It's a demonstration of the lack of repentance in his life, of the hardness of his heart, and it's heartbreaking. It's that moment when the patience of God is shown. And why is he patient? Romans 2.4 Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Even though we have been weighed and found lacking, God is patient wherever you are in your life. He has been patient with you. You are here, and you're here in this place as he has designed this moment in which I'm going to remind you that God is perfectly just and every sin must be judged. He must. And either you will pay the penalty for your sins yourself through an eternity of separation from God, or Jesus Christ will have suffered that separation for you and you receive that gift by faith. And I would ask you today to trust Jesus, to turn to God the Father and say, would you forgive me for my sins, which are many, I'm guilty, And would you deal with me according to Jesus that he has died for my sins and pray that prayer this day. We remain faithful as we remember God and as we carry that message that there is sin and there is salvation. And the last point is brief. We will weather the changes. Verse 30. That same night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was slain. So Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of 62. Don't miss what this might mean to Daniel. We go, yay, an entire new nation, not just a new king within their nation, an entire new nation has now conquered their nation. We, we know and love Lenin. Um, Lenin was in Zimbabwe when the coup occurred in which uh, the former president was ousted by the military and Manangagwa became the new president by military force. Can you imagine how distressing that would be? It would be distressing in a country the size of, of the United States, but when you're talking about a much, much smaller city state, it becomes much more frightening. What will happen now? We have no idea. What's going to take place? No idea. All of the influence that I've had is now washed away. This is a time of of turmoil for Daniel. But Daniel's been faithful. And his task remains, doesn't it? What's he got to do? Keep being faithful and build God's kingdom, even though he's living in man's. It's a different man, but it's still building God's kingdom while living in man. That's what he's got to do. Where I hope, I really hope, I hope, I hope, I hope, I hope, we're about to enter a post-COVID world. Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> be just wonderful. Um, and I hope we're we're getting there, right? And things will change, right? I think there's an element, and there's indications that we're essentially on the edge of if we haven't crossed over into a post-Christian culture, right? Where 
Christianity is no longer the preferred religion. Christianity is no longer considered with a, a moral authority. Christianity is now viewed as the problem in our nation. And we're entering into that. It's distressing, isn't it? Um, we were talking about our grandkids. I'm going to tear up. <laughs> and just, just, just the, the, the anticipation. What are they going to face? I don't know. Does it change our job? Nope. Does it change our task? Nope. What are we still supposed to do as Providence Presbyterian Church? Make disciples, right? So what are we going to do and why are we going to do it? We're going to do it because we hope to see every man, woman, and child in the world trusting in Jesus Christ. That's what we long for. Has it changed? Nope. The task is there. So what do we need to do? We need to remain faithful in building God's kingdom while living in man's. To remain faithful, we're going to have to remember God. We're going to have to carry the message. And then we can weather the changes. Let's pray. Father, you're so faithful. Thank you. Thank you that as we think of being faithful, we don't have to do it ourselves. All on our own. We don't just bow our neck and put ourselves to it. But we bow our knees, put our trust in you, and we move forward. Lord, you're the one who makes us faithful. Will you do that? Will you help us, O oh God, to remember you, to carry that message and to weather the changes? And will you do it so that Jesus will be praised? Amen.